you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you're forever opposing the Holy Spirit. When I was in homiletics class as a seminarian, our professor told us you should always put the fireworks at the end of the sermon. Apparently, Stephen was in my class. Because <laughs> this is how he wraps up his sermon. I find that if I'm also preaching a long sermon and people begin to drift off in the pews, it's always helpful to call them stiff-necked, uncircumcised opposers of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Brings them right back. Stephen had been hauled in before the high priest and the council. And the accusation that was made against him was that he was committing blaspheme against God and the law of Moses. The accusers went on to say that this man will undermine and threaten our temple and our customs. So the high priest asked Stephen, is this true? I think he was looking for a simple yes or no answer. Instead, Stephen launches in to this lengthy sermon in chapter 7. He begins the sermon by saying, you know, the glory of God showed up first in Mesopotamia to Abraham, as if to say it did not all begin on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. No, no, even our own story begins with what God did in the country of the Chaldeans. And then, as his sermon continues to tell a different rendering of the narrative than the high priest and council were used to hearing, he spends quite a bit of time talking about Joseph in Egypt. And every time Stephen says Egypt, I am sure that the council and the high priest felt another prick to their hearts. And he must have seen that because he just keeps saying Egypt. He says it six times. Egypt, 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 Egypt. Egypt, God's working in Egypt. If God had not been working in Egypt, we would have all starved to death as a people. The grace of God came to the Egyptians. The longest part of the sermon is about Moses, but most of that section of the sermon is about what a bunch of whiner the Hebrews were along the way in the desert. And then even in telling this part about the wilderness sojourn, he smuggles in the word Egypt nine more times. When he finally gets the people into the promised land in this sermon, he skips right ahead to David, the great King David, who gets one verse. Solomon gets one verse, and that's simply to indicate that Solomon built a temple that God doesn't really need. It's as if the whole point of this sermon is to say God was at work in places like Mesopotamia and in Egypt in a desert wilderness, God does not need to be confined to the places that we try to confine God to, like a temple. There's more to God than you know. There's more to God than you know. So apparently the answer to the high priest's question is yes, a resounding yes, Stephen is threatening the tradition and the customs of the people. And that's why he then comes into the high crescendo of calling them stiff-necked, uncircumcised, offenders of the Holy Spirit. His point was to say that you've just got this one narrative that is so 
narrow. You can't attend to all the other things, even out of our own story that God has been doing along the way for all the peoples of the earth. And in fact, you're doing the exact same thing now in your persecution of the church. There's more to God than you know. So we're told that they become enraged and they ground their teeth at him while he preached. I've preached a lot of times. I've never gotten to the point where I got people grinding their teeth at me. So they're really upset. But this is not what gets Stephen killed. It's the next thing that crosses the line for the high priest and the establishment. Stephen says, I see a vision of the heavens opening and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's too much for them. At that point, they put their hands on their ears and they rush Stephen and drag him out and stone him to death. It's the vision that got Stephen killed. They could handle his criticisms about the narrative, but the the vision changes everything. Because if Jesus is the Son of Man who's now at the right hand of God, that means that they were wrong about Jesus. And that meant that their entire religious commitments were now being threatened. The story that they love to tell over and over again, that the centrality of things in Jerusalem, it's all going to unravel if this vision is correct. A people who thought they had a holy land because they had a holy city in the midst of it. And the city was holy because it had a holy temple in the midst of it. And the temple was holy because it had a holy of holies in the middle of it, where God would come and meet the people. We don't even know if by this time they got that veil re-sewed up that was torn from top to bottom when, when Jesus was crucified. I used to think that that veil was ripped apart so that anybody could have access freely into the Holy of Holies. I now think just the opposite. I think since God was the one who tore this veil apart, it was so that the holiness could run back out into every corner of the world once again that the Creator is reclaiming. A Creator who says, I will never again let anybody limit me to a particular piece of geography. The whole world belongs to this God who in Christ was dying to love us. Visions are threatening things. They undermine our self-constructed world. They, they pull us out of the narrative that we love to keep telling. And they're not always received even by the church itself. Think about how threatening the church is to each other with our visions. Let's get even closer to that. How many, how many times have you been in a precept and someone was presenting a vision of God and you wanted to put your hands over your ears? You say, that can't be right. I didn't come here to hear that. There's more to God than you know. And visionaries have often paid the price for their visions. Ask Nelson Mandela about that, or Lucretia Mott, or Sojourner Truth, or Dr. King, Wilberforce. I mean, the list goes on and on. History's now made these people heroes. But when they first started spinning their visions, the church was threatened, deeply threatened by them. I used to serve a church in Washington, D.C. 
One time when we were digging around the archives, we found this extraordinary story. In 1866, the pastor of this church was a man named Reverend Sunderland. Reverend Sunderland thought Frederick Douglass had the right message, so he invited him to be the guest preacher in his pulpit of this church. And following Frederick Douglass's sermon, the elders of the church had an impromptu meeting. They decided it was time for Reverend Sunderland to take a trip to France for a year as a way of being in exile for daring to bring a visionary to the pulpit. Now we would say that's heroic. Now we would champion that. But not at the time. Not at the time. If you're going to be a visionary for the church, and Lord knows, literally, Lord knows that we need you to be, you have to keep attending to worship. Worship is the place where our stiff necks, made stiff because we're constantly peering into our own anxieties, can be lifted up in order to see the risen and ascended Christ at the right hand of God who is still reigning and not nearly done with his earth and has still more visions for us that will bring us closer to this coming kingdom. That's why we come to worship. We need new visions. We need a new vision for government. We need new visions for healthcare and for commerce and even for the nonprofit sector. We certainly need new visions for the church. But we can't have visions without having visionaries. And visionaries are always formed and shaped in worship. Isn't it fascinating that the text tells us that in this vision, Jesus is standing at the right hand of God? Most all the other texts that describe the ascension have Jesus seated at the right hand of God. But as Jesus witnesses what's about to be the first martyrdom of the church, he, he can't stay seated. He has to stand. Maybe that's because he's in awe of Stephen's courage. Maybe Jesus is standing because he knows how many more martyrs are going to follow out of their devotion to a vision. Maybe Jesus stands because he just can't stay seated when he sees someone who's willing to lose their life in order to find it for a vision that can include us all. Wouldn't you love to imagine that when your days of service are over and a congregation is gathered to place you back into the arms of God at your funeral, that Jesus once again stands It happened to Stephen. It, it could happen for you. But not unless you cast your life into a vision. A vision that begins with the belief there is more to God than we know. Amen.